Please grab your Bibles. I must move quickly. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hands. We're glad to do so. I see a couple hands. All right. So thank you. John 7, starting with verse 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 to start off with. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Jerusalem, uh, in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast. Uh, or he says, You go up to this feast, for I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Let's pray again. Father, we just ask for the help and ministry of your spirit as we look at your word, as we open your word, as we read your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be teaching me as I teach your people and teach those that may not be yet your people, but you're calling them to be your people. Lord, I pray for an anointing of your spirit, Lord, just uh, empty me, fill me with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd soften every heart, open every ear, those here, those that are online, and Lord, that we would hear from Jesus once again and remove me from the equation, as it were, that we would hear from you and you alone. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We left off with uh, many would-be disciples walking away from Jesus. Remember that many said, we're not following him anymore. Intrigued and perhaps impressed by what they had seen him do in the way of miracles, but not enough to follow Jesus. But at the same time, they were unconvinced. They were ultimately offended by him proclaiming to be the bread of life. They did not like that term, the bread of life, when Jesus said, The twelve... Minus Judas, remember Judas was still not a believer, but he was this with the twelve. The twelve minus Judas and possibly other disciples that were present, they didn't leave Jesus' side. Many of you have been saved a long time now. You haven't left Jesus' side, and you know he hasn't left your side. But those eleven had come to fully know and fully believe that Jesus alone had the words hope and eternal life within himself. You heard my niece saying, I just need Jesus. Jesus is the only one that has the words you need, that has the eternal life you need. And the disciples had come to believe that. They had come not just believe it, but they knew it. But the mission of Jesus still moves forward, doesn't it? It didn't stop there. That was not the end. He still has a three-year mission to complete. There are still more people to see. There's still more messages to preach. There's more conversations to have. There's more um, hearts to touch. There's more lives to transform. There's 
more work to be done in his three-year journey to Calvary. And the same is true for us. We move forward day by day in our journey uh, that Christ has put us on. We all have a journey that we're on, whether we realize it or not. Uh, But all of us, he wants us more abiding in him. We have more people to meet. I met a lot of people yesterday that I didn't know. I'll meet people this week I didn't know. There's more truth to be proclaimed. This is, this is Jesus, but also us. There's more work to be done. It's not, it's not sailing on a carnival cruise line nonstop for a Christian. You know, As Tozer said, the world is not a playground, but a battleground. And so there's more work to be done. We've got we to gotta sweat and do some effort for the kingdom. There's more of our life to be lived in Christ, step by step, day by day. And some of this, we'll see entirely new faces and new situations. We'll, we'll be in totally new situations at times. We'll see faces we've never seen before, at, but also some. And in fact, most of kind of our life is faces and places where we're retracing our steps. Same office on Monday, same hospital you work at on Monday, whatever. Same people in your family, same Things, just living out the routines and patterns of life, of being a disciple with other disciples, but also alongside those outside of Christ that where you go to work, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. But those routines, those patterns, Jesus was in some senses on a circuit. And I tried to advance that and it didn't advance once there. I don't know if that was the same issue we had. There we go. But uh, Jesus remains in Galilee where he's been for some time now, and we see his brief interaction here with his family, specifically his brothers, followed by Jesus then returning to Jerusalem, and we will see his reception there uh, in just a minute. But in both cases and in both places, Jesus continues to give light and to give truth to the hearers. But the key for them and for us Will they hear and will they believe? Remember this entire John series is is titled the Only Believe series. It's one thing to hear what Jesus says, but will we believe what he says? At this point, remember, his brothers don't believe what he said. We We just read it in the text. Will we believe and be open and be softened or will we refuse and remain closed? You know? You remember that thing, talk to the hand? Right? Remember that? That's an old cliche. You know, that's, it, but that's the kind of people's heart. They just kind of put up, a, put up a hand, put up a wall. And that's where his brothers are at here, and that's where we're going to see the religious leaders are at when we get uh, into the next part of the text uh, in a few minutes. But if you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Unlocking the Heart by Believing His witness. Jesus brings an eyewitness of everything. It's the will of the Father. Aren't you glad that Jesus can unlock anyone's heart? Anyone's heart. I don't care if you were in the mafia for your whole career. Could you call that a career? But anyway, uh, (laughs) but if you, you know, I think they do. Uh, But anyway, it's the crime business or something like that. So, uh, but I don't care if, if you were in a gang forever, if you were just destroying lives, if you had been Married and divorced seven times and leave a trail of destruction behind you everywhere you go. Any 
person's heart, Jesus can unlock the heart. Some of the hardest to unlock, though, are religious hearts. The Pharisee, I mean, you're gonna, we're going to see that. I mean, they are some of the hardest ones because they think they're really good. It's easier to convince someone who's a heroin addict that they, they got issues, <laughs> right? It's harder to convince someone who really thinks they have it all together. But Jesus can unlock any heart. But that'll never happen outside of believing in him and believing on him. But his witness continues because even though he's done all these things that we've seen so far in the first six chapters, the witness continues because Jesus is on a march to Calvary. It's a three-year march to the cross. If you're taking notes, let's take a look at our first point this morning. I only have two, thankfully, because we do have the Lord's Supper this morning. But uh, the first one, a matter of trust and time. It's related uh, to his brothers and their lack of trust in him. But also Jesus mentions time, his time, their time, our time. Jesus concluded his message and his proclamation. Again, kind of a little bit of a review here, and especially those of you that are new. Uh, he talked in, last, in the last chapter that he was the bread of life. None of the prophets, in fact, nobody had ever used this title. You've never met a person that you meet that says, I am the bread of life. You wouldn't even know what, what are they talking about. No one had ever used this title or term, and lo and behold, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. People might say they're smart. People might say, I, am, I have a high IQ. People might say I'm the smartest person in the room. But people don't say, I am the bread of life, unless you're the Son of God. Or insane. <laughs> but Jesus, in fact, said that no one had, they'd ever heard this title, but they were offended by it. Jesus was proclaiming that he was, he was like the manna that came down in the wilderness just as Moses saw the manna come down, the people saw it. Uh, it came down out of heaven from God the Father. But Jesus told them, I'm way greater than the manna. Because he offered eternal life. And manna, manna didn't offer eternal life. Even though you, they had it for 40 years, then it stopped. He even said that they had to eat of his flesh and drink his blood. And we understood, if you go back and listen to the other teachings, that was a metaphor. He never called, he never once never once asked them to eat his arm. It was a metaphor of complete acceptance. <coughs> complete acceptance and belief in him. And all of this was preceded by his amazing miracles of healing. We talked about what would it be like if Jesus completely healed you. And you could literally call your doctor and say, I'm not seeing you for a while. Everything's done. I, I'm, I'm fully healed. That would be awesome. But he did that. And he fed thousands by himself, and as the seed fades, he still remains there in Galilee. He, there's all of this witness of his work already, but he remains there in Galilee. He's not returned to Jerusalem since chapter 5 where he healed a man. You, got my, you, you remember that? He healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. That was back in chapter 5. He has not been to Jerusalem since then. And he healed the man on a Sabbath, and that caused a problem. They didn't like Sabbath work. Well, the law said you couldn't work, but they were mistaken what Jesus did for work. So that happened, and he hasn't been there. And what he said after that would further incense the leaders, and it ultimately 
came to the point where they were enraged and wanted to kill Jesus. This is going back to chapter 5. So then he had focused his ministry all through chapter 6, which is a lengthy time, which I believe all through the summer. What I would look at as a cool-down period, allowing them to cool down, calm down. But the Feast of Tabernacles, you'll see in uh, your, your, your text here, it says in verse 2, now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booze, Sukkot, was approaching. This was one of, we talked about this before, there was three feasts that every Jewish male was required to attend in person. You couldn't do it on Zoom. They didn't have Zoom then. But even if they did, you couldn't say, I'm just going to call in. You had to go to Jerusalem three times a year, seven required feasts, three where the males had to attend in person. Of course, Jesus kept the law. He was at the other feast. He was at the one before that, which was Passover. And here he's going to have to head back to Jerusalem as all the required males were. There was the seven. I have them up on the screen for you so you can kind of see uh, you have seven required feasts, and those of you that are familiar with the holiday season, you'll see uh, menorahs out, and you have Hanukkah, which was not one of the seven required. Hanukkah came later in the Maccabean period when the temple was cleansed and they reinstituted the worship of God, and at, after Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple, they rejoiced that the temple had been re-cleaned so that you have Hanukkah, which is outside of the law, although Jesus did observe it, and you have Purim, which was when Haman was going to kill all the Jews in Persia and the Persian Empire, and they escaped. And so you have the Feast of Purim, which was not given to, through Moses' law. They weren't required feasts, but every Jew around the world today, and even Jesus in his time, loves both Hanukkah and Purim. But again, they were outside law. The seven that you see, one through seven, uh, were given un, under the law of Moses. And by the way, the first uh, Passover unleavened bed unleavened bread and feast uh, of first fruits, they all happen in consecutive in that week, what we also call the Passion Week or Passover Week where Jesus goes to the cross. Those are all at the same time. So if you go to Passover, you would be there for unleavened bread. But unleavened bread was specifically the one and then the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, and then the third, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus was already at Passover unleavened bread back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we'll get to that in a second. And then uh, he was there at the feast, I believe. Uh, we don't know for sure because remember that chapter 5 doesn't say the feast, but I believe based on the timeline personally that it was uh, the feast of Pentecost there. But his brothers knew that he had to go back. They knew he had to go back. And oh, one other thing, these seven feasts also play a role in prophecy. So when we get to September... You're going to see they not only apply to the first coming, but they also apply to the second coming. We'll look at some of these things. But uh, anyway, the brothers know Jesus if he's going to be a faithful Jewish male. As they're kind of giving him the business, they're expecting him to go to Jerusalem. And his brothers know that he has to go, and they're going to go because they follow uh, the law. But you see the cynicism in their backhanded compliment and their challenge of Jesus. Hey, if you really want the world to know all that you're doing, you should go do it in Jerusalem. That would be like us doing it in New York City where all the lights are on, all the cameras are on you. You really want everyone to know all the amazing things you're doing? Why don't you go do it in Jerusalem? They're not in the camp yet of Peter. 
and John and the other apostles that fully believe in Jesus. The brothers haven't put their trust in the Lord. We ask people to put your faith and trust in Christ when you come to that point saying, I'm going to bow the knee and believe on the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior. His brothers have not put their trust in him. They've seen him do signs. They're not sure about them, but they still at this point mock him a bit and tell him go to Jerusalem and prove who you are. And of course, Jerusalem's also the holy city. It's not just the bigger city, but it is God's holy city. And so they know that the religious leaders would vet him there, and of course they've already been doing that. But there's a death threat on Jesus back there in Jerusalem. It's a little like Joseph's brothers. Remember in the Old Testament? Uh, they scoffed at Joseph's dreams. They didn't care much for Joseph. They didn't think he was special. But he was special. And his dreams were going to come true. And he really was going to be exalted. And who does that sound like? He is special. And he, all of what he said is going to come true. And he really is going to be exalted. And there's a lot of parallels with Joseph and Jesus and the, their fo- types and foreshadows. Joseph's brothers later repent, don't they? All of them come to him and bow the knee and he, rest- he has a restored relationship with every one of them. Even some of them that had committed a lot of really bad sins were completely made new. It was great to see. That's great news for the rest of us, right? Because we've, we've all committed stuff that we're like, can you make us new, Jesus? But at this point, his brothers don't believe in him. But we're certain that later, two of Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, also called Judas, you can Jude and Judas are um, two names that you'll hear um, for the person if they have the name Jude. But eventually, both James and Jude will believe in Jesus and they'll write the epistles of James and Jude. <laughs> Jude, by the way, he doesn't even believe in Jesus until after the ascension. He literally, Jesus has to fully go up in the clouds for Jude to finally believe. None of it happened in Jesus' lifetime, not even his resurrection. James and Jude were that skeptical. And then they finally put their trust in their brother, who was actually their savior. They didn't have the same father. Jesus had was the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary. But a little encouragement that uh, even after we've moved on from this world, isn't it great to know that some children and grandchildren can get saved long after you're gone? But you've got to live it right now so they would have that witness to look to. That other family members may put their faith and trust in Christ after you move to another state or even move on to heaven. That then and only then they're like, and someone else gets a hold of them, which is really good to know. But these brothers go from mockers to James and Jude will someday become ministers. But right now, Jesus, uh, it says, uh, John says, for even his brothers, verse 5, for even, even his brothers did not believe in him. But they'll go from mockers to ministers. And in James' case, he'll go from mocker to martyr. We know for certain that, that James is martyred for the faith. And many scholars believe all of Jesus' siblings eventually come to believe in Jesus and serve in the body of Christ. I'm of that mindset, but... There's not 100% proof of that, but I, I tend to think that some of the writings uh, indicate that. But that would also be a match and the foreshadow of Joseph because Joseph, all his brothers eventually are restored. Not half of them, all of them. All of them. But believing, his brothers didn't believe, 
Believing changed everything. That's what changed Peter. That's what changed, changed John. That's what changed James. It was believing in Jesus. Now, of course, we know from chapter 6, you have to be drawn to the Father. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. But once God brings you to the foot of the cross, you have to either believe or say, no, I don't believe. I'm going to trust in my own righteousness, which is what the Pharisees and religious leaders are still doing. Believing changes, it takes us from belittling Jesus, which James and Jude were doing, to later becoming bold for Jesus. From balking to just bold followers of their brother who is actually their savior. But he says to them something that probably doesn't make any sense to them at the time. He says, my time has not yet come. They're like, what are you talking about? Your time has not yet come. See, there will be a time where Jesus would lay down his life as the Passover lamb. Amen? The sacrificial lamb. That time was not yet come. He had to fulfill the full three years. He had to teach as many times the Father had ordained every city where Jesus was supposed to go. His time had not yet come. And once again, no one can tell Jesus where to be or where to go or, hey, you should be here within a week. Only God the Father tells him, now is the time, now move on. But he says to them, you always have time. Your time is always ready. In other words, they can be changed from cynical to saved by the blood of the Lamb anytime they're ready to believe. That's true for anyone online and anyone here. Anytime you finally believe, you can be changed in a day, in a moment. Even people that you would say, well, that celebrity could never be changed. Yes, they can. Pray for them. Don't just rail at the TV. Pray for them. We all do that sometimes, I know. I have to stop myself. Oh, they need the Lord, you know. But he tells his brothers, uh, you know, your time is always ready. I, I just, you know, anytime you can be, God can change you. Last, last Sunday we did the baptism. It just, it dawned on me after the fact, you know, there's David in there being baptized. And I remember when he got saved in one of our morning services and Pastor Trevor's there beside me. And I remember when Pastor Trevor was on our prayer list 10 years ago to get saved. And now he's serving with me. And I remember me also in there, how I was before I got saved. And God can change us all. Uh, in a moment. Uh, Billy Graham, by the way, said uh, salvation happens in a moment, but being a believer lasts a lifetime. Amen. It takes a lifetime of being changed. Even though you're changed in a moment, there's a lot of shedding off that takes place. And that Jesus is doing that with the apostles, but at the same time, he's bidding the hearts of those that are still hard. Now, um, when you decide to believe in Jesus and you say, I'm giving, my faith. Uh, I'm giving myself to the Lord, Jesus says here to the brothers, he says, you know, the world can't hate you, but it hates me. When you give your life to the Lord, the world will not be excited about it. They will not cheer with you. They will not say, this is awesome. Um, it's great to see what God is doing in your life. They're not going to be excited about it. Our natural born of flesh, um, the brothers resisted Jesus because our natural born flesh does resist God. And then if we come to the Lord, all of a sudden we're no longer resisting the Lord, we are adopted into the Lord. But the people that were our buddies and our friends and our neighbors and co-workers that are still outside, they're still, their heart's still in opposition. Whether they know that or not, they still are. Their heart, it's like you know, the magnets, when they're in the wrong way, they repel same thing. 
Furthermore, Jesus is hated by Satan. And therefore, the whole world will hate Jesus. The same apostle, how do we know this? The same apostle John wrote this in 1 John 5, 19. He said, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That's why the news media the way is, is the way that it is. That's why Hollywood is the way that it is. That's why politicians keep doing certain things. That's why people keep having divorces. That, the world, the whole world, that's why drug addiction is growing on every continent. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world. And so John is saying, Satan is always stirred up. And it's easy to work with. He's got an easy to work with group of people because our hearts are already bent towards sin. And the enemy stirs up the world against Christ and against his followers. And he's like, they, they, he tells his brothers, while you're in your current state of disbelief, the world won't hate you. But if you join this side like the disciples, different ball game. If you're trying, if you're here online and you're here in this room, if you're trying to make the world love you and think you're awesome and follow Jesus, never going to happen. Doesn't work. They're not going to love. Now, they can still be drawn by the light, but they'll also be repelled by the light. Same wax that softens the uh, softens the same sun that softens the clay hardens the wax. So, Jesus would go on to say in John fifteen eighteen, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And it's amazing that Jesus is hated when all he does is heal people and and deliver them from demons and feed them and all of that. And yet his brothers and others still don't believe. Jesus remains here. His brothers go ahead and leave. They head on to Jerusalem. Let's pick it up with our second point and let's read uh, the rest of the passage. Pick it up. I'm going to read verse 10 again all the way through verse 24. But when his brothers had gone up, and he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So Jesus appears to go up by himself, um, and there's, if he can get there any way he wants to, so we don't know exactly uh, what takes place here, but he goes up, as it were, in secret, and the Jews sought him. Anytime it says, then the Jews, and, this, and it happens a lot in other texts as well, but uh, it's not speaking of all Jewish people. It's speaking of the leaders, then the Jews, it's speaking of the leaders, and you'll see the words the people, which is the larger context of all the Jewish people there, but the Jews here and in other places speaking of the leaders. It would be like saying, and then the political elite, and then all the decision makers in America, and then all those who have the power. But it just says the Jews, and you'll see it in context, remember we understand Scripture in context, and you'll see it bear out here. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And that, this is not a, a kind question. Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people. Now this is the multitude. The people is the crowds. And the people concerning him, some said he is good, and others said they're having conversations among themselves over some hummus and falafel and all the things that you get in Israel and all that. They're having conversations. Uh, I think he's good. I think he's deceiving people. Uh, it says in some, in some on the contrary, he deceives people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. They weren't putting it on Twitter because it was going to get censored. You know, they weren't doing certain things because they had to be secretive about it. So they were conver if they believed he was good, you know, I'm 
I'm just kind of modernizing that for a second, obviously. But um, they were speaking among themselves, trying to figure out. And the, and the leaders are listening to what the people really think. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up, verse uh, uh, 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied. Jesus answered and said to them, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak it on my own authority. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus speaking of himself. He's clean, not even a trace of unrighteousness. Did, you, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Boy, you know they didn't like hearing this. <laughs> they thought they were the experts at keeping the law, and none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Then the people, now he's speaking to the leaders there with a kind of a, a side notes to the crowd. He's speaking, mo- you ever, you're direct, you ever talk, you're talking to a group of like seven people, you're really speaking to one person, but you kind of have part of that conversation hitting everybody else. That's what's happening. He's speaking to leaders, but then it's also uh, coming to everybody else. The people, they answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? In other words, the leaders had not told the people their intentions. So the people are like, our leaders didn't tell tell us they were trying to kill you. They just said, where are you? And Jesus is like, yeah, the full story is they want to know where I am so they can kill me. This goes back to the previous. We'll get to that in just a second. Jesus answered them and said, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, Moses didn't start circumcision. It was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Moses picks it up 400 years later. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? It's now Jesus is speaking back to the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So, a lot to digest. Let me go through this in our brief amount of time. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and so... His time away from Galilee has diffused some of the immediate intent to kill him. Not that the plan had changed, just they're not currently enraged. Still the long-term goal remains the same. That's still their goal, they're just not immediately enraged. Along with uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, they'll instead become strategic killers that will be instrumental in Jesus dying by crucifixion. In other words, that the Romans will do the dirty work for them, which was prophesied in Psalm 22, rather than a sudden just outburst of wrath and stone him to death, which was the Jewish way of capital punishment, uh, that befalls Stephen in the book of Acts, right? That happens right there. They get so angry, they gnash their teeth, and they stone him on the spot. That's not going to happen because God's not going to allow kind of He's going to hold them back. We get to prophecy when we talk about when the restrainer is taken out of the world. Everything will, this, it'll bust at the seams. And so they're held back by the Lord. But a brief review on the timeline, just so you kind of see, here's up on the screen the timeline of where we were and how we've come to chapter 7. 
Back in chapter 2 and 3, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover and unleavened bread. It's the same week. He clears the temple. That's strike one. Clearing the temple, nobody's happy with that. He tells Nicodemus that at night that we must be born again. That happens in chapter 2 and 3. All that is the same time period as the Passover week. Then the second is not mentioned. Remember the second feast in chapter 5? It do, John doesn't name it. I personally believe, I'm not, I'm not dogmatic about it, I personally believe it was Pentecost because he would have had to come back from Passover 50 days later and then he could take the entire summer for them to cool down because it's at, if it was the Feast of Pentecost, which I can't say definitively, but Jesus heals the man at Bethesda there, that's when they're so enraged that he doesn't come back for a long period of time, which would take out that whole summer period. But then he has to come back for the third time. This is where you know your Bibles are informing you of the scriptures match up perfectly. He would have to come back for the third time only in the fall, which is the Feast of Booths. He would have to come back, although he comes back and secretly and he shows up in the middle of the feast when everybody is kind of thinking he's not going to show up by that point. And he reiterates, he was sent by the Father, he talks about his doctrines, he confronts that they're seeking to kill him, he confronts them on their disbelief of his divinity, and specifically their outrage about him healing on the Sabbath, which would have been his previous visit, which would map right back to the Feast of Pentecost. So again, even though John doesn't name that one, it's the only one he doesn't name, um, I think it, it lines up uh, perfectly. But in a sense, he picks up where things left off. Right? Kind of picks up where things left off, and some are drawn to Jesus, some are uh, thinking that he really is good to the dismay of the religious uh, leaders. Others think he is a deceiver. The leaders themselves, they're looking for him. They're working on their plan to trap him, how they can bring him down, how they can ultimately kill him. The people, on the other hand, they fear their own leaders. They talk secretly. I think he's true. I don't think he's true. I think he's the Messiah. I'm not sure. But they talk about it quietly. Jesus, of course, he's aware of everyone's hearts, everyone's intention. Nothing can happen till him, to him until the Father ordains it. He cannot be crucified, and of course it has to be crucifixion, until the Father fulfills that full three-year ministry through his life. No, no one can take Jesus' life. He's going to do what? He's going to lay down his life. He's going to lay it down. He could have called 10,000 angels if he wanted to. But in the middle of the week, Jesus finally shows up and reveals himself in the middle of the feast. You could probably hear a pin drop when he walks in. You ever, you ever were talking about someone and they enter the room? <laughs> in the middle of you talking about them? We've all been there. Because we all are human beings. We've all put our foot in mouth. Well, I don't even think he's going to show up. And all of a sudden, here he comes. Right there, and, the, and everyone got the leaders, the people. I bet there was just total silence as Jesus walks in. He shows up. Everyone wondering about him. Would he show up? His brothers said, Well, last time we saw him, he was in Galilee. He said he was maybe coming up at some time. Even his brothers are probably thinking, When did he get here? How did he get here? But after Jesus teaches, the leaders are amazed. The leaders themselves, it says they marvel. They know Jesus 
has never attended a rabbinical school. He doesn't have the formal education that they do. He's not been trained at the, the seat of the great rabbis. He doesn't have a master's degree and an MBA from St Stanford, and he hasn't been in an Ivy League school, and he doesn't have all the extra certifications that we consider elite things today. They had their own schools that were thought of in the same way, and they were only for the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priest and the other priesthood. Jesus had had none of that training, and yet he knew more than everyone else times a trillion. And then, of course, in an infinite number. So they're marveling at his teaching, like, who taught him Genesis through Malachi? When it says letters, it means the whole construct of the Tanakh, which is Genesis through Malachi. How does he know not only what the law says, but he knows how it fits with the other parts of the law, what it all means. He knows all the laws by you can't ask him one that he doesn't know about it, but they don't like his answers about it. That's the difference. Notice they never accuse him of anything false. They marvel, but they, they say, how does he know all this? He doesn't have our education. But they don't say, how does he know this and distort it? They have nothing false to bring up. They would have the same problem when they get to the, the, the trial, the, the kangaroo court in the middle of the night when they're trying to railroad him to the cross. But they can't understand how he knows all these things. They marvel. We know that Jesus came not to violate the law, but to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill. He taught the law and the people marvel at his knowledge of it and his teaching them things they'd never heard before, never understood before. And that's my good friend Sam who will be here. Sam's coming October 10th. Dr. Sam Nadler will be here. And I hope, and I, I don't know what he's going to teach on. Maybe I'll have him teach on rewards and how we can gain or lose our rewards at the Bema Seat of Christ, which is a series he recently did. But anyway, he talks about when it comes to fulfilling the law, if you took a vase and you filled it with pure water to the middle, let's say that's the Old Testament, that's the Tanakh, that's Genesis through Malachi, that's the Torah, which is the first five books plus, and it's pure water. Jesus comes and adds the rest of the pure water and fills it to the top. The same pure water, it's just now full. He came and tells the rest of the story, and the rest of the story is him. He was the foreshadow. He was the Joseph. He was the Isaac laid on the altar. He was the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. All that kind of stuff that they would see and understand, but he's like, no, that was me, that was me, that was me. I told in the first service, I'm like, look, but I, I did two summers of construction. When you build a house and they come and they excavate and they dig this thing, they dig the footings for the house and they, pour, and they put in uh, the cinder block foundation, then you pour the uh, concrete and everything. Um, that looks remarkably different than the stud walls and sheetrock and stuff. But it's all part of a house and you don't just keep adding foundation after foundation. What are we, we going to live in? You, and you build the house and Jesus comes and takes the law, and then he builds the house of salvation, if you will, on it. And he is what you then are brought into. That's what we're called the body of Christ. We're brought into the house of God. So he understands the law, and he's teaching it, and he's building on top of it the understanding that goes beyond what they've been taught, which has even been distorted by the religious leaders. He also not only teaches the law, but he's the only one who's ever kept it perfectly. He says, you break it all the time. 
That doesn't make them, he's not more endeared to them by saying that. <laughs> but he also reveals that he's the Messiah and it keeps it perfectly. Um, what Jesus does here and elsewhere is he shows that the law was always preparing the way and pointing the need to the sinless Lamb of God. It was always pointing to him. He's the only one that can keep the law. He's the only one that can fulfill the law. He's the only one that can tell you what Moses really was type or foreshadowing there. So when he teaches on doctrines they've never heard of, it doesn't nullify the law. He's building on it. Take virgin birth. That had never happened before. It never happened since. It didn't happen under the law. It happened because Jesus is the giver of the law. Does that make sense? He has to have a virgin birth, although that was prophesied, and the virgin shall conceive. It was already in the law, but when Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of it, they think he's lying, right? And if Mary says, no, he really was, they think she's lying. So the problem is not the truth. The problem is their rejection of the truth. Does that make sense? Yeah. So ultimately, he continues to teach them these things, but some believe and some say, no. We're looking for a reason to be offended. And we're going to take that you healed a man on the Sabbath as our issue with you. That was back in chapter 5 because he goes on. He's, uh, let me, a couple other things and we've got to come to a close here. Um, the people are listening and the leaders are hating it. Just like uh, the people listened to Moses and some wanted to stone Moses to death. Uh, didn't happen. God didn't allow it. But Jesus reminds them that and the last time he taught them, it inflamed them in that last visit. And that was when he came and he heals a man. But his authority and the anointing of his teaching, he's saying that um, the reason, the reason it's full of power is because it's coming directly from God the Father, who they claim to believe in. And that full power that Jesus preaches with it causes repentance in some and infuriates others, same as it does right now all over the world. It infuriates the North Korean leaders, but it brought you and me to salvation. Amen? Amen. Same gospel. It divides. Jesus said it will even divide households. And in verse 18, Jesus reiterates that uh, he does everything and says everything for the glory of his Father. Not even for himself, although Jesus is worthy of all glory, he doesn't do it for himself. He testifies that he's unrighteous, I mean, he, that he's completely righteous, and there's no unrighteousness in him. He doesn't even make word mistakes like I just made. No, nothing. <laughs> That's not true of us. We've all broken the law, but he's never broken the law. The leaders, they want to add to their transgressions murder when they're already lawbreakers. And the people who know nothing of the leader's secret plot, they're like, are you, what are you talking about? No one's trying to kill you. Do you have a demon? Of course, Jesus doesn't. The leaders would have loved that statement. They're like, now, now they're coming to our side. But Jesus ignores their blasphemy, which is exactly what it is there, for now, and he gives them grace because he's trying to get to their hearts. He's the key to every heart. He's speaking to their hearts. He could condemn them all there, but he's not. He even lets them say something as foolish as he has a demon. And he continues, and he concludes these remarks by confronting the leader's hypocrisy 
and their ignorance, their hypocrisy and their ignorance. See, the law mandated that circumcision would take place on the eighth day. And if the eighth day landed on a Sabbath day, now you've got Sabbath is a law, circumcision is a law, you've got to keep them both. So they would. They would keep the Sabbath, they wouldn't do any work except for the circumcision. No other, and that would be, that's okay because they are both mandated by the law. But there was other things in the law they could do, like if someone's uh, donkey fell in a pit, did you know you were allowed to get it out? They knew that, but they would ignore that. And so Jesus comes along back in chapter 5 and sees a man who has been lame for most of his entire adult life, and Jesus says, rise and walk, which took no work. Jesus just said words. What would be the difference of saying, let's go to lunch versus rise and walk? It's the same amount of effort. It is no effort for Jesus. He did not work. He just said, rise and walk. So the guy is healed, and they're incensed by it. Meanwhile, they could have done 10 circum- 100 circumcisions that day. And they're not bothered by that. And that's much more work. And poor kid, you know, that, uh, <laughs> on top of all that. I remember sitting in church as a kid, like, what does that word even mean? You know, uh, but uh, I digress. But um, again, they're, they're selective of what they really want. When it comes to the law, they're very selective. And that's key to understanding what he says in this last verse, and I'm, I'm just kind of synthesizing this quickly. Uh, you, know, you know when you have scales, and you see that uh, image where the lady has the blindfold? And the whole thing is that you're not supposed to look at the scales like our country currently does in lots of ways. We look at the scales and say, let's tilt it. That's what we prefer. And you're supposed to put on the scales and not, and the scale is supposed to determine what the weight is on either side. And Jesus is saying, if you really follow the word of God, it'll always, always, it'll land on righteousness. But if you're trying to decide, well, we think, this is really, we approve of this, but we don't approve of that, then you just tilt the scales, but then you do it with a religious hypocrisy. And that's what he's speaking to them about. He's like, you're fine with circumcision, but you don't even like some, you don't have enough decent compassion, you're fine with a donkey being delivered out of a day, but not a man being healed. That's just taking the scale, taking off the blindfold and say, we don't like Jesus, we like ourselves. And that's what he says here. He says, do not judge according to the appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, your judgment should be submitted to the will of God, submitted to the truth of God, not, well, this is the way we think it should go. So we just twist it. And then we put a little spiritual veneer on it. That's how, that's how they endorse slavery for like years in this country. They just tilt the scales. They say, well, I found a verse and we just tilt it like that. It was sin. It's racism is what it was. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. He's saying that the Pharisees, they have a righteousness that their own creation, what Jesus says, what I give you, I'll give you a righteousness that you stop trying to play God and you instead submit to God. Amen. Amen? Amen? And they were trying to play as if they were God when they were literally talking to God. And resisting him. Closing our, our righteousness, brother and sister, it's not earned, it's not created. We can't make ourselves righteous. It's received by believing and obeying. Amen.
Later his brothers will believe and obey. Later some of these uh, scribes and Pharisees, but, but, but we are changed by believing and obeying, not offering up excuses and changing words to match what we want to do. Amen? Yeah. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we just thank you, Jesus, that uh, your word is so true. It's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. The Lord divides our spirit, our thoughts, and the, in, the, in the intents of our heart. So, Lord, we just, uh, as we come to the close here, some of the things you say are, are hard to understand because, Jesus, you speak on a plane that's so beyond us. But you also said that a child could understand it. If we're coming with pure hearts, we'll see the essence of what you're saying and we'll always submit to it rather than trying to find a way around it. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your, your just directness. None of us have kept the law. We've all been resistant to you. We all started out as unbelieving. Lord, in this room, if there's anyone here that is still unbelieving, I pray that today would be the day that you would open their eyes. Lord, I can't open a single person's eyes. I couldn't even open my own eyes. But Lord, you can open eyes to bring a person to believing and knowing that you are not only the Son of God, but the only way to salvation. And if you just keep your heads bowed for just a second, and I can't see those that are online, but if, before we take the elements, I just want to ask, is there anyone in this room? You don't know if you have tomorrow. We know at least five people in the last couple of weeks that thought they were going to do Christmas later this year, and they're not. Thankfully, some of them, if not all of them, are with Jesus. I don't know some of the people. Personally, I don't know some of their situations. But if they believe in Jesus, it's, it's better than Christmas where they're at right now. Is there anyone here that says, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. Today. I want to believe on him for salvation. I want to be saved and my sins forgiven and I want to be washed clean and I want to know that I have the hope of heaven now and forever. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I can't save you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But I can lead you to Jesus. Anyone at all. I don't want to take for granted that everyone here is a believer. I can't see online. But I'm going to pray and, it could, and if there's someone online, just pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for giving your life for my sins. <laughs> Thank you for living a sinless life and preaching the eternal gospel of your own self. And Jesus, I'm deciding this day to follow you. Please wash me, cleanse me, forgive me of all of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and help me now to grow in your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you did that, send us a note at questions at calvarychapelrva.com. If after the service you said, I didn't want to raise my hand, I have more questions, we'll have some people up at the front. D.L. Moody said more people got saved in the inquiry room than ever did walk in the aisles. So uh, we want to be here to answer your questions. Um,